Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn them in the New Testament to the book of Titus and chapter number two in Titus. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 168, and you would be at Titus 2. You know, the Lord Jesus said of you and said of me that we are the light of the world. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, if you go to pick up a flashlight these days, you will notice on the labeling it measures the light output of that flashlight in lumens. You may have wondered, what is a lumen? Well, a lumen really is the light of one birthday candle seen from one foot away. Now, I want to do something a little bit different. I want us to go ahead and darken the room. We are to let our light shine before men in such a way. We are to dispel the darkness. And if you take some lumens of light and shine them, you get a little bit of the dispelling of the darkness. If you turn around and then have a little more lumens added to the darkness, we can see a little bit more. Or perhaps you can take a light with just a little more lumens to it, and you have more darkness being dispelled. I can see many of your faces right now. Now, if we're all, let's bring the lights back up, if we're all shining as light together, you get this sense of the dispelling of darkness. We're to let our light shine in such a way that people would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So that's a great opportunity that we have as a follower of Jesus to shine in the darkness. And when we do that, ultimately, we are illuminating the greatness of God. Now, I want to ask you this question. What does shining as light have to do with the workplace? You know, some of us here today work part-time. Many of us work full-time. But all of us, at some time, will work full-time. All of us, at some time, will be investing 40 to 50% of our awake hours at the workplace. Now, here's what I want you to think about that. 40 to 50% of our awake hours at the workplace, strategically speaking, proportionally speaking, that becomes our greatest opportunity to shine as light. And what we're going to cover in our message today is something that I wish had been built into me as a young person. For many young people and even many people at, at large, work is a four-letter word. Work is something to be tolerated. It's something to be endured. In many ways, people just feel like work is unrelated to the kingdom of God. 
And one of the biggest failures in my life is at the age of 17, working at a job and goofing off at the job and getting fired from the job. We're involved in a series of messages we have entitled Designer's Fashion, Adorning the Doctrine of God in Every Respect. And the title of our message today is Godliness at the Workplace. And we're going to be studying in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and I would like to read those verses and would invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Paul tells Titus to tell certain groups of people information, and here he says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, what we're going to do in our time together today is to look at three different things. First of all, we're going to look at the fact that work is part of God's plan. Then secondly, we're going to look at the backdrop of New Testament slavery. And then thirdly, we're going to look at our call to godliness at the workplace. So that's where we're going today. And the first thing we want to do is we want to look at the fact that work is part of God's plan. Now hear that again. Work is part of God's plan. It's not something that is to be avoided. It's not something that is to be dodged. In Genesis 2.2, it says this, by the seventh day, God completed His work, which He had done. You see, working is God-like. And in Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden for what purpose? To cultivate it and to keep it to work. And I remind you that the fall of mankind doesn't come until Genesis chapter 3. This is pre-fall. Work was part of God's plan. Now, post-fall, work became more difficult. But from the beginning, work was part of God's plan. In Exodus 34, 21, it says... You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. You shall work six days. In the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom about how to live life, hard work is applauded. In Proverbs, it commends the ant for its work, and it condemns the sluggard for its lack of work. Now, here's what I think generally happens, even in the believing community when it comes to work. Generally, when it comes to work, we view work somewhat with our hand right in front of our face. We really don't have a very good perspective about work, and what we really need to do is we need to pull back for a longer view. We need to view work, as it were, from a taller tower, a tall building. We need to have a bigger view of work. 
And when we see what the Scripture has to say, we realize that work is not a four-letter word. It's not a necessary evil that we have to tolerate or find some way to slide through. It's not merely a way to pay our bills and to buy food. Work is part of God's plan. We were designed for work. We were wired for work. And it's through work that we get to meet our needs. It's through work that we get to serve other people. It's through work that we get resources to share and invest in God's kingdom. It's through work that we can shine as light and honor God. Most of you have an advantage over me. Most of you will touch and influence more non-Christians in one week on your job than I will in one month. Don't underestimate the potential of your work to be a way to shine as light. So it's just laying out that first principle that work is part of God's plan. Now, the second thing we want to look at is the backdrop of New Testament slavery. You say, well, why are we looking at that? Well, notice how this set of verses begins. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters. And some people say, well, how are we applying that to work? How are we applying that to employment? This is talking about slavery. Well, we want to talk a little bit about this whole idea of the backdrop of New Testament slavery. Slavery in the New Testament Roman era is very different than the racial slavery of American history. So don't take that from our culture and automatically read it into the Bible. And here's what I want us to understand. Aside from the very wealthiest people in Roman times, there were largely two groups of people in the Roman Empire. The first group would be those who were self-employed, much like we would have self-employed people in our day today. And those self-employed people were called free men. And if you were in that group as a self-employed free man, you might be a farmer, you could be a carpenter, you might be a tent maker, you could be a shepherd. But Apart from the very wealthiest, the first group were the self-employed freemen. The second group involved a large number of people who served others, and they were called bond servants. And in the Roman Empire, there were 50 to 60 million bond servants. They made up about one-third of the population. And there were a number of ways that you could become a bond servant. I wanted to share with you a few of them. It's not an exclusive list, but one way that you could become a bond servant in those days was by being captured as a consequence of war, you might become a bond servant. Another way that you could become a bond servant was by being indentured. If you had incredible issues with debt, if you were virtually at the point of bankruptcy, they didn't arrest you and 
necessarily throw you in jail, but you had the opportunity to become indentured to somebody else, to basically sign a contract with them, to serve them until your debt was paid. And then another common way that you could become a bondservant or a bondslave in those days was by self-choice. What do we mean by that? Well, what you would do is that you would willingly give up your rights to serve another person for a prescribed period of time. You say, well, why would anybody want to do that, give up their right to be a free man in order to prescribe themselves for a period of time to have to serve someone else? Well, there were several reasons why. For one, if you were a bondservant to someone, you would be educated at the master's expense. If you were a bondservant to someone, they would be obligated to train you in a trade. And so if you wanted to be a carpenter or if you wanted to be a stonemason, that's one way that you could get there was by being a bondservant for a period of time. And bondservants, this nearly one-third of the whole population in the Roman Empire, would fit into all kinds of categories. You could be a field laborer who was a bondservant. You could be skilled laborer who was a bondservant. You could be a teacher and a tutor who was a bondservant. You could be a physician who was a bondservant. You could be an estate manager who was a bondservant. What is really interesting about this is if you do some calculations on a given year, the average bondservant would actually have double the discretionary income in a year that the average free man would have. So you can see why some people would choose to become a bond servant or bond slave. Most bond servants were employed in homes. The average bond servant was a bond slave for about seven years, and most people became free men by the age of 30. And yet, this was a a real issue in New Testament times. In fact, when people came out of the pagan community and then they trusted in Christ, this became a little bit of an issue because, you know, they had a master and they think, well, no, no, I have a master only in heaven, and so maybe I need to get out of this agreement that I have. And and Paul addressed that issue with the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 21. He says, were you a slave, a bond slave, when you were called to Christ? If so, don't let it trouble you. I mean, you don't have to try to break out of that because you're not violating anything with God necessarily. But he says, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So now when we talk about today in our average employment, our workplace has a whole lot more flexibility to it than those who were bondservants in Roman times. I mean, we don't normally sign an employment agreement that I'm going to work for you no matter what happens for the next seven years. We have a lot more flexibility in our system But the reason why I'm going through all of this, I'm trying to just demonstrate that these verses have application to us in the sense of employment in our day, because what we do for most of us are not self-employed. Most of us are working for somebody else. Most of us in our employment are under the authority of another person. So therefore, 
the principles that are laid out here in the book of Titus have great application to us in our workplace. So we've looked at how work is part of God's plan. We've looked at the backdrop of New Testament slavery. Now we want to gear shift into our call to godliness at the workplace. Now, one thing it helps to think about is when you see verses like this in the Bible, to realize that there's a reason why it was necessary to talk to people about these issues. And in that day, I think they had the same issue that we have, and that's what I like to call Jekyll and Hyde Christianity. And in Jekyll and Hyde Christianity, an individual is one way in a church environment, but a whole nother way in the work environment. And that was happening in Crete, and it happens today. And the thrust of all of this is that Christ is supposed to be relevant on Sundays, but Christ is also supposed to be relevant during our work week. Now, notice what he writes here. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Now, I believe this is an umbrella statement that he is making. You need to submit to your master, to your employer, to line up under their authority. The essence of this umbrella statement is, is that we're to have a godly attitude towards authority in our life. So he says, urge bond slaves, we could say urge employees to submit, to line up under the authority of their own masters, and then it says, in everything. Now, when he says that, in everything, he he doesn't mean, well, if your boss orders you to do something illegal, you have to do it. If your boss orders you to do something that is criminal, that you have to do it. That's not the thrust here. In fact, we're going to see in all of the directives that are given to us here, I believe they're all to counter a certain tendency that we tend to have. So what is he countering here when he says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters or our own employers in everything? I believe he is countering our tendency to be selective. When it comes to responding to our employer, we tend to be selective. I'll do it if I like it, what he's telling me to do. Or I'll do it if I want to do it. I'll do it if I feel like it. I'll do it if it seems fair to me. If it's not fair to me, I don't want to do it. And what he's really addressing here is the attitude and the perspective that we bring to work. I want you to keep your finger in Titus 2 and turn several books to the left in your Bible to the book of Ephesians and Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul, in a very similar environment, talking about the same issues, gives us a great glimpse at a way of keeping our attitude and perspective right. 
Now, in Ephesians 6, and you're going to see him say this basically three times. Notice what he says in verse 5. Slaves, we could say employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. Now, here comes the phrase, if you underline your Bible, you want to underline it, as to Christ. You relate to your employer as to Christ. Verse 6, you're to function in your work environment not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves, or we could say employees of Christ. Verse 7, with good will, render service, here comes our third phrase, as to the Lord, not to men. You see what he's saying here? Your attitude and perspective is that you're doing your work as if you were doing it for Jesus himself. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says, whatever you do, whatever it is, do your work heartily, and then what does it say next? What does it say next? As to the Lord rather than to men. We are to adjust our focus on the job as if our ultimate boss was none other than Jesus Christ. I like the way John Stott put it. He put it this way. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for lawyers to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know that if you just think about that for a moment, it will revolutionize your perspective, and it will revolutionize your performance on the job. When I was in college, one of the jobs that I had for a while was in these apartment buildings cleaning communal bathrooms. Now, if you have a communal bathroom, that means that nobody's responsible for the bathroom. So they can turn out to be the biggest, grossest messes that you can even imagine. And I can remember when I would come into these communal bathrooms and I had to clean them when I first started this job, it ticked me off. What were these idiots thinking? Who leaves a bathroom with this kind of grossness to it? It just bugged the heck out of me. Then later on, some of these principles have been shared with me, and, and I did a little gear shift in my perspective. And I came into the communal bathroom, which was still gross, but you know what? I said, you know what? I'm going to clean this bathroom as if Jesus Christ were the one who's going to come in and use it. It made all the difference in the world in my approach. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. 
And ultimately, we need to be thinking about our boss is really none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, he's going to go on and give us four specifics here. One that will be positive, then two that will be negative, things we're to avoid, and then another positive one. So the first specific he gives us regarding our employment, I believe, is that we are to work hard. Notice verse 9, he says, we are to be well-pleasing. The New Living Translation translates it, we're to do our best to please. And what pleases your employer? If you are an employer, you can give me an amen here, but what pleases employers is they have employees who work hard. Is that not right? Yeah, absolutely. And yet we lose sight of that. I came across this one little comment that a guy made. It just made me laugh when I I read it, but it's just so real. He said, my boss picked me for my motivational skills. Everyone always says they have to work twice as hard when I'm around. Yeah, that's one form of motivation. When you're here, I have to do twice the amount of work. Now, why does he say that we need to work hard? Well, you see, the tendency is that we coast when we are at work. I came across this little timetable. This isn't what you see commonly at work. You know, the office timetable, if you work in an office, you might recognize these kinds of attitudes. Nine o'clock is starting time, but 9.30 is when you arrive for work. Then at 9.45, you have a coffee break. 11 o'clock, you check your email. 11.15, you start to prepare for lunch, because, man, you really got to get prepared for lunch. At noon, you do lunch. At 2.45, you browse the internet. At 3 o'clock, you take a tea break. 4 o'clock is just finishing time for all your work, because you got to take the next hour to get ready. At 4.30, you really start preparing to go home, and then at 5 o'clock, you go home. See, our tendency is to do that kind of thing with work where we're just coasting. And the best way to shine as light at your job is to do a solid day's work. You know, there is a reason they call it a work day. It's called a work day because we are supposed to work. What a radical thought. But I want you to know, and I made allusion to this when we started today, at 17, when I was living in New Jersey, that was not really my perspective. And I got this job where the job was to deliver, after school hours, office supplies. And here's what happened. When I got to the job, I was introduced to my predecessor on the job. And the boss said, you need to train Bruce on everything he's supposed to do. Oh, yeah, he trained me all right. He basically said to me from the very beginning, there's all kinds of opportunity to goof off on this job. Here's the way that I've been goofing off. Here's the things that I've been doing. And you do this and you do that. And you can spend company time and you can go to Dairy Queen and you can do all these kinds of things. And, you know, I just thought, well, I guess that's just the way that you work. I guess that's the way the job works. Until the time my boss came to me after one particular day and says, you've been 
you've been goofing off, and you are fired. And I can just remember, my, I'm what? I'm fired? And I could still remember going home and having to tell my mom and dad about that. But what was happening? I was taking my cues from my peers rather than from God. And God says on our job, we are to work hard. Now, that doesn't mean we're to be a workaholic, that we're to become so obsessed with our career that it's a detriment to our family. It simply means don't coast. Work hard. Now, there's a second point of specific instruction that we see there in verse 9. And then he says, you need to tell them to, on the job, not to be argumentative. What does that mean? What's the tendency? Well, the tendency we tend to have on our job is to be disrespectful, to begin to gripe, to develop an us versus them mentality, and at times even we can harbor some animosity towards our boss. We can become a little hard to manage. When I was in graduate school in Dallas, Texas, I worked on a commercial paint crew, and uh, we did all kinds of commercial jobs, and I was the newest guy on the team, which meant I was the low man on the totem pole. And if you know anything about commercial painting, you know that the hard part of painting is the preparation. That's where you have to go in and you have to prep surfaces and you have to sand and you have to caulk. And you do that work and it tears your hands up. And the trouble with all the prep work is it's hard to see great progress. What you want to do is you want to get to painting, man, because you can really blast through that and you see this incredible progress. And there I was, stuck as the low guy on the totem pole. And I have to admit to you, there were times when I started complaining about this. I started griping about this. Can I get to do some painting? Why am I the one who has to always do this? We're not to be argumentative. We're not to be disrespectful. We're not to be griping on the job. And then the third specific he gives us in verse 10 is not pilfering, not pilfering on the job. Now, what's the tendency that he's really trying to come back from? And the tendency here is, I believe, that we tend to rationalize on the job. We tend to rationalize. You know, my boss is a little bit of a jerk. They just frustrate me and they irritate me. Yeah, I might just take something that really doesn't belong to me. Uh, this is a big company. <laughs> They're not going to miss it. They're not going to miss it at all. Or we rationalize in this way. Everybody does it. I mean, all the employees are, are, are taking some things from here. Or we rationalize in this way. I've earned it. They owe me. They don't pay me enough. I'll just take a few things. When I got my very first job, when I was still in early high school in New Jersey, I got a job at a grocery store. I made, in 1966, a whopping $1.10 an hour, and that was cooking. 
in those days, I'll tell you. But it wasn't very long when I realized kind of the way things worked in the grocery store again. See, what would happen is when the employees would go at break time, we would all shoot down the snack aisle. And we would reach out, and in my case, I always grabbed a package of Twinkies. And then I'd grab a can of soda. I didn't pay for these things. And you'd go to the back room, and you'd have your snack. And the rationalization was, this is a... You know, this is a big store. Do you know how many snack cakes there are in that aisle? Do you know that they bring new snack cakes every single day? You know how many cans of soda there are in the back room, the storeroom back there? It's not that big a deal. I mean, hey, I'm just going to grab some Twinkies and have a soda on my break and not pay for it. See, it's very easy to rationalize. And we're not to be people who pilfer, who steal. And, and this, this is a wide spectrum of what people can do. There's not a month that goes by where we don't hear about somebody in our community who has embezzled money from a business or an organization. How did they get there? They began to rationalize. People take supplies from their employer. Oh, they're not going to really miss these things. I earned this. And, and all kinds of things are coming up today different ways that you can pilfer on the job. How about just spending company time, you're in an office environment, where you are playing games on the computer or doing other personal computing time as part of our workday. See, we're not to be pilfering. And then the fourth specific he gives us there in verse 10, I believe he's saying we are to be dependable. We are to be dependable. In verse 10, it says we're to show all good faith. The NIV says we're to show ourselves to be fully trusted. Uh, The New Living Translation says we are to be entirely trustworthy. We're to be dependable. And the greatest illustration of dependability that I know of is the illustration of Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember how Joseph worked for Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard? And it says that Potiphar left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. He trusted the dependability of Joseph. The only thing Potiphar worried about was what he was going to have for lunch. Now, I want you to notice this about Joseph. You go back and you see the story. He, when it came to dependability, he earned it. You know, the old-fashioned way. He proved himself. He proved that he was willing, that he was hardworking, that he was pleasant, that he was honest, that he was dependable. And so should we be at our jobs. We should be dependable. We should not be cutting corners or goofing off when we're not being watched. We should not call in sick when we are not sick. I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but do you realize that Jesus worked 
and learned how to work. You remember his father was a carpenter and he was a carpenter. What does that really mean? It means that Jesus had to learn to take orders. Jesus do this. Jesus do that. He had to learn to do the, the sweat of labor at his job. Jesus had to meet deadlines. It's just the way it is. Now notice the key phrase at the end of verse 10. Not pilfering, showing all good faith, so that, you can underline if you mark in your Bible, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So that, he said, you are to be this way on your job so that you can add sheen and luster to the reputation of God. You're to be this way on your job because it enhances your influence of the gospel message. You're to be this way at your job and your employment because it's the way that you live out the reality of having a relationship with the living God. You see, we are truly the Savior's hands and feet. Ephesians, or rather Matthew, uh, Matthew 5.16 again. Let your light shine before men in such a way, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How are you going to shine this week at work? Now, I want to leave you today with some questions for reflection, and I'll put these on the city. They'll also be on the church website, but I want to give them to you. First question for reflection. Do I pursue work energetically, or do I just coast? How many lumens do I bring to my job? Second question for reflection, where does my conduct at work need the most improvement? It's a great question to ask, wrestle with in prayer a little bit. And then the third question for reflection, is it my aim at work to make God look good? Is that my aim? when I head off to work, to make God look good. Let's pray together. Father, we just really want to thank you so much for your word. Again, it's alive, it's powerful, it can change our life, it can give us new perspective. We need to realize that we live in an era where there's a battle for truth. But I would pray, Father, for myself and for every one of us individually and for us as a collective group that we would be students of the word that we would understand what your Bible really has to say, and we know that brings us true spiritual vitality, that we would stand up for the truth, that we wouldn't be afraid to do that. And most important of all, that we would really live out the truth. Not that we would be perfect, because we're not going to be, that we would be men and women who would display truth in our life, because we ultimately want to glorify the one who died for us. We pray these things in His name. Amen.